I always wanted to know who the best player was on tour simply because I wanted to actually work as hard. And then I ran into a, a little guy by the name of George Knudsen out of Canada. And I watched him hit the golf ball. I watched him with the wide stance, taking the club back way inside, releasing the club. One of the greatest ball strikers I'd ever seen. Now Ballesteros. With a putt that could win him the 113th British Open. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the McKellar Golf Podcast. My name is Lon Stonigan and I'm joined this week, as I'm joined every week, by my good pal, Mr. John Huggin. The guest this week is Darren Clark, to whom I hadn't spoken to for 10 years, for reasons which we'll come on to during the podcast. So all credit to Huggy for opening his voluminous contacts book and pulling out Darren's number and giving him a call. Darren very graciously agreed to come on and talk to us for more than an hour. It is a fantastic chat raw and honest to say the least but before we get on to it i have to do the usual my little bit of selling mckellarmagazine.com slash shop we are not just a podcast we are a magazine a literary golf journal i like to call it the new yorker of golf uh, that's not a bad tagline issue three of mckellar is available right now uh, you can go to the website and purchase uh, your copy i'm biased of course but i think it's a uh, wonderful publication something to hold and to cherish for a very very long time anyway probably enough of that uh, mckellarmagazine.com slash shop uh, let's get on with the show over to you huggy darren clark thanks for coming on the uh, mckellar podcast what have you been up to in these strange times that we're all living in at the moment yeah very strange isn't it it's, um i'm currently in abaco here at the abaco club winding bay in bahamas um, I came here whenever our whenever TPC got cancelled at the start of the outbreak, and um, unfortunately I couldn't get um, Alison, my wife, um, other son Connor, who goes to Harriet Watt. He was in Edinburgh. He's just got back. He just got back to Portrush, and my other son Tyrone is in Boca Raton in Florida, a place called Lynn University. There, I couldn't get them all here before all borders and everything. If you remember, it's, it uh, everything changed so quickly that uh, I couldn't get them here in time. So I'm here on my own and they're in different places, obviously, around the world. So from that point of view, it's it's, uh, it's pretty, t- pretty tough. But I'm lucky yeah, that, here in Abaco. You know, there haven't been any cases. I've been very lucky that way. Yeah. So what have you been doing with yourself? Um, practicing and playing mm. every day and irritating myself unbelievably. <laughs> <And>, you know, <laughs> I mean, just, you, you'd think, you'd think it would be good to have as much day that much downtime because I'm fortunate. I'm obviously very fortunate that I'm here and um, good weather most of the time. And I've got the golf course down there, wonderful practice facilities, everything. And I can go down and work on my game. But then, you see, I'm a bit, I'm actually stupid. I'm actually very stupid because I watch all these things on Instagram and all sorts of stuff. And I watch all these golf coaches and I think, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'll go down and try that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'll go down and try that. And then I ended up hitting the ball all over the place. I said, well, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> good idea. But that's what I'm doing. So just practicing and playing every day, basically. So basically what you're saying, Darren, is that you haven't changed at all. As I get older, I'm supposed to be more sensible, but that is not the case, unfortunately. There's a secret out there somewhere. I can't find it. It's probably in the bottom of the glass. I've, tried, I've looked for it there a few times as well, I have to say. But um, <laughs> I'm trying to find it. Always trying to find it. 
who are you looking at, Darren, on Instagram? See, it's like Genkis, people like that. Yeah, a um, little bit of a little bit of George. I had a lesson off George. He came to see me in Orlando there about three years ago. I spent a little bit of time with him. But just all things, just uh, just you know, it's, it's like everybody, you know, all the social media channels, um, YouTube, um, Twitter, Instagram, everybody, because you got so much. We've all got so much time on our hands. You're all looking at different bits and pieces, and um, you know, I've been. Um, Fortunate enough uh, that I get on really well with Phil Ketchum, so I've been sending him some videos and, and popping stuff that he's been sort of helping me with, trying to make some more pops because that's what it all comes down to. But, um, you know, just watching everything, just uh, it's almost like I've got a, a need for information, which, and some of it, uh, whilst it all may be good, doesn't quite fit my profile. Too much time to think. Yeah, exactly. 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 Too, too much time to think and tinker. Yeah. Can I ask you about the Genkis lesson? Was it just one? I mean, he's such an interesting guy. No, we came. He came to um, Orlando, and we went to Agworth, uh, and we were there for a couple of days, and we were working on all stuff. And, and he's a real cool guy, George. Mm-hmm. He's a really, really nice man. And um, you know, a swing with all the lessons, and I've been fortunate, you know, over the years to spend a lot of time with with uh, some of the best coaches in the world. And George's methods a little bit. Um, a little bit different, uh, you know. You just take a look at at, at uh, Matt Wolf, you know, his, his young um, prodigy, and, and how he's come out and started playing. And you know, his swing's a little bit different. And George is is just a little bit different than all the stuff I'd heard from Butch, from Pete, uh, Butch Harmon, Pete Khan, uh, David Leber, all the guys. Um, George is just a little bit different. But you know, the, the impressive thing as well with George was, you know, he would explain something to me. Um, said, right, try and do this, and, and, and this is what you need to do. And then he would actually step up there and hit a shot himself and just absolutely rip it. Yeah. I mean, just he just cured it himself. So, you know, he understands the feelings as well. The, uh, I, I did notice this morning, Darren, that you're, I think you're fourth in driving distance on the, the Champions Tour, 298 Am yards. I? Yeah, you are. I just, so it kind of makes sense now because Genkis is pretty much into speed and distance, isn't he? Yes, he is. He is. But I've been working a little bit more, um, you know, with with um, my my coach at home, Seamus Duffy. Um, he used to run my golf school, and he's a coach from home. And Seamus has had me on now for many, many years. And um, speed is is um, is very important. It's more important, I think, speed these days for the younger kids on the um, on the main tours, you know, on the PGA Tour, the European Tour, etc. Uh, you speeds everything of those. If you're not carrying the ball 300, you're, you're, you're not getting anywhere. Whereas for us out on Champions Tour, it's um, it's beneficial to hit a long way. But you know the courses we play, they're still they're not. A lot of people think on the, on the Champions Tour, you know, we play courses at whatever 6,600 yards, flags in the middle of the greens, um, you know, just easy course setup. But the, the courses we play most of the time are like circa 7,100. Greens running between 12 and, and 13 on the slip meter. And flags, three, four on greens, over bunkers, just over water stuff. So the test is pretty is pretty stiff. But the Champions Tour guys, you know, because it's a three-round tournament, you've got to score and you've got to get after it really, really early. Big difference between three and four rounds. And distance, while distance helps, you know, the guys out there are unbelievable with their wedges and their putters. The scoring is, is, is really, uh, really impressive. And until you get out there, you don't actually realise how good they actually play. How much have you enjoyed the Champions Tour so far? Yeah, I, I enjoy it, but it's it's 
it's frustrating because I want to get, get my, I haven't won out there yet. And I, I, I've been in with a few chances, not as often as I'd like to. And I sort of, oh, I don't know, maybe <laughs> same old thing as Huggy would probably say. Nothing's mm. changed. I still get frustrated. <laughs> I still get irritated with myself because, you know, I still work my ass off of the game. You know, I'm practicing so hard, uh, even prior to this, to try and get myself in there. And I haven't quite been doing it um, as often as I would have liked to have done it. You know, you, you shoot one level power round um, on the out in the Chapman's tour, and you're basically you're out of the tournament. <laughs> that's 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 what happens. This going that good, so I've enjoyed it. It's been brilliant to get get out there, and I feel as if um, you know I've been somewhat competitive. But the pro inside me still wants to be. I've, I've got to do better. It's one of those things. You know, could do better. I'm like at a I don't know what I'd call it, a B minus. Got to do better. Yeah. What, what's what's your exemption status on that tour at the moment? Because, I mean, I've I've been kind of critical of the Champions Tour in the past. I mean, it's it's, it's almost too much of a closed shop for my liking. I mean, it's, it's somebody like Paul Laurie can't get a start hardly on the tour. I mean, he, yeah. he's a major champion. What what's been your experience yeah. in that? Yeah, it's it, it is it is very tough. You know, their criteria is is tough. Um, I got a one year exemption for winning. The Open and two World Golf Championship events, they've, they've got um, certain criteria, certain points that you need to uh, hear. So a major is worth two, um, other tournaments are worth one. Um, and if you, if you get minimum five points or something or whatever it is, you know, you get a, a year or whatever. And then after that, it's all to where you finish in the money list. Uh, you know, if, you don't, if you don't finish in the top, say, 50, you're not going to get a start anywhere. So last year I finished, where did I finish last year? 42nd, I think it was, yeah. 42nd, and then one person came out. So I'm like, for whatever reason, I'm like 41 on the list to get in. So I'm always circa um, around second or third reserve, but they've been very good to me. You know, they've given me uh, lots of invites. The tournaments have given me invites uh, to come and play. So, you know, it, it's tough. At the end of the day, you just... It's the same old, same old. Nothing changes. Play better. That's just the answer for it all. It's tough to get on there, and it's tough to actually stay on there. You know, you've just got to play very well. What are the guys who are at the top of that money list and winning tournaments doing better than you at this point, then? Wedge and putts. Wedge yeah. and putts. You know, they're, they're converting their, their, their chances. You know, I'm still... Coach management's never been really been one of my uh, strong points when it comes to playing golf. <laughs> you know, I tend to get a little bit aggressive, and um, you know, I tend to. Um, I, I should be playing when I should be playing smart. I play stupid. You know, I go for flags, and um, other times that I don't go for flags, I get too far away from them. I just my course management is not good enough. Whereas those guys out there, you watch Bernard Langer. Look at his scrambling stance; they're unbelievable still to this day. You know, and, and I'm. Because I get too aggressive, I miss flags in the wrong place. Still, miss greens in the wrong place. And as I've just said, there, um, you know, the flags, the the flag pin positions are not in the middle of the green. I mean, they're, they're in close, and, and then I short side myself, and then it's a bit of a grind. So, I've just got to play smarter and play play better. Yeah, I th- I've always thought, Darren, that half of your trouble, and you just described it pretty perfectly, is that you've got too many shots. You know, you, the, the t- you just want hit it in the middle of the green is not something in your DNA. I mean, you if you've got the shot, the pin stuck behind a bunker or whatever, you've still got that yeah. shot. That that's a double edged sword, is it not? Correct, correct, and that's what I've always tried to do. You know, from you know when I was a young kid, uh, growing up, I'm playing all the golf with Rob Portrush. 
it was all about shaping the ball into, um, you know, move it left to right, high, low, whatever, all that sort of stuff. And then sometimes I, I, I sort of start there on the fairway and think, right, what I'm going to do here? Am I going to hit a low cut in there? Am I going to hit a high draw? What am I going to do? And then, you know, if, 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 if you make mistakes and short-side yourself doing that, then, you know, you're going to get into trouble. And that's what I've, that's what I've, do, that's what I've done. You know, you take a look at a tiger in his head, Ed, you know, when he, when he was unbelievable. If the flag was on the right, nine times out of ten, tiger would start at whatever, at the middle of the green or, or the left edge of the green and move the, move the ball in towards the flag. Conversely, if the flag was on the left, he would start on the right edge and move it in towards the, the flag all the time. You know, he was, he was that good, goes without saying, he still is, but that's how he did his course management. And if you think about it, you know, you think about it in logical terms. You stand there with a the driver, and the fairway is whatever, say 40 yards wide. So you take one yard off either side of the fairway, you've got 38 yards um, is, is the width of your fairway. So he was able to, and comfortable, to stand down there and aim it down the left side and drift it back into the fairway. So if he starts it down the left side, he's got 37 yards to move the ball into, whereas... Sometimes you don't think about it properly. If you're tr- aimed straight up the middle of the fairway, then you've only got 19 yards either side of that, and then you're in the rough. So it's all about managing your shot shape and going to whichever way um, you're comfortable doing it. You know, and, and sometimes I, I see, I see the glory shot all the time. Oh, this high soft fade, um, falling right down on the flag, whereas it should be in a little bit further left and just playing more to my percentages. But I find that difficult to do. What, why does that happen? Why do you do that then? What, what do you mean? <laughs> Why do this? That, that, Lauren, that is uh, the million-dollar question. You know, if I'd have been able to figure out how to do that and think better, probably all those years ago, you would never have written that Darren Clark con- uh, continues his inexorable slide towards golfing irrelevance. <laughs> you would have never written that. If it, well, if it had been a little bit smarter, Lawrence. Not that I, not that I remember shit around. Like, you know, that wouldn't be me. But, I, um, yeah, you yeah. know, it's... It, Strategy, strategy has never really been my uh, strong point. But, but I only, I, I didn't, I, I will come on to that later on, by the way. I, I, I didn't ask yeah. it as a kind of insult, but but it is interesting. You, you, you ID that, don't you? You, you recognise it. Golfers oh, recognise yeah. it. Oh, but totally. It kind of begs the question if if someone recognises something, but I mean, just golf's just crazy. I mean, it's just insane, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, it? it is. But, you know, it, it, it requires, it, it, at the top, top level, it requires an awful lot of patience. You know, it, it requires a lot of patience and a lot of discipline. And I had really neither. Okay. <laughs> you know, which is going against myself because sometimes a shot to 25, 30 feet is a great shot. I didn't really, uh, that wasn't really the way I thought of it. I, I wanted to hit the shot that would, that would uh, give me a buzz or that would, that would please me. You know, I didn't see a shot to 30 feet as, um, oh, that's okay. That's that's okay. That's fine, and that's maybe what I should be doing. I always wanted to hit the shot that oh, that was good. You know, spin it off that slope or bring it in high and soft over a bunker or do whatever to to get a little bit of a enjoyment because I could. But then percentage wise, that was not the shot that I should have been playing. That makes sense. That's that's not necessarily a bad thing though, Darren. I mean that your your career. I mean, there's a downside to it, like you, you've just described, but your career is dotted with some incredibly low rounds and some incredibly, yeah. you know, great performances. 
mm-hmm. on days when, when you were on. I mean, it was a ridiculous what you could go around a golf course in. I mean, that's the upside of it. Yes, that is the upside. But the days that you're on are... The, 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 golf is not measured by how good your good is. Golf is measured by how good your bad is. That's mm. what our sport is. And that's what the great players have been able to do. And I think if you take a look at Rory recently, Rory's been able to turn out his, his, well, obviously, prior to the pandemic and why he plays so well, is that he's still turning in good scores when he's not quite on. You know, you look at Rory and you think, he's just going to rip every course to shreds. But even, you know, for like the best players in the world, they're not, they don't always flush the ball every day. They play well, don't get me wrong, but they, they, they're maybe not quite on every day. And it's turning those days where you're going to shoot like a 73 or something like that, you turn those into 60, 69s or 68s, then all of a sudden that's when you start winning. Yeah, I, I was hoping I was going to lead you into talking about your 60 at the K Club there, but you've you let me down. Mm-hmm. Tell, us, tell us about that. <laughs> um, well, it was one of those sort of sort of days that, um, I don't know, I just went out and played and I didn't actually think too much. And that was the that was the the secret to it. You know, I've worked on and off with Dr. Bob Rotella for years, and um, his one of his whole things is just look at look and react, look at your target and react, and that's all well and good if you can do it. But if you're thinking about swing mechanics, etc., etc., then it's difficult to actually look at your target, give up, and just hit it and go and see. That day, I actually did, and I played with I was playing with Woozy, and can't remember who the third one was. Um, but I got just gotten one of those runs where I just kept my swing was on. I kept hitting it close, um, and then I had a chance from about I was I was twelve under with two to play, and I'm playing the 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 seventeenth, which is a at those at those uh, that stage the seventeenth was the eighth hole I started on the on the back nine, mm-hmm. and it's the one around the lefty to par four, and I hit um, I think I had maybe I might have hit a two iron off the tee and a nice. Seven iron, I think, or eight iron into about uh, into about oh, fifteen feet or so, and hit a really good pop um, that didn't turn, just mislipped out on the high side, and then I get in the last, the the, the ninth hole, and uh, hit a good drive up there. I've got, I think, I got one one twenty seven of the flag or something, and uh, hit a wedge right at it. Got a little bit of a gust, went a little bit long, and I hit a thirty foot past and um, missed the butt come back. And I was more pissed off at myself for not breaking sixty than I was oh. for enjoying the for for not shooting fifty nine. I was angry when I came off the golf course that I didn't shoot fifty nine. How mad am I? That was it. But you know, when you get those chances and and I didn't take them. I was more really irritated that I didn't, that I didn't break sixty. Here, uh, what's happened with the uh, PG? Let's call it right. It's the PGA Tour Champions, I think it's called. What's the? I think you, you yeah. played in three events before the whole thing was called off, or. Of what have they to- told you? Are you coming back? Yes, our we are scheduled. Our first tournament back is scheduled for twenty seventh of July in uh, Warwick Hills in Detroit, Michigan, and then I have then we have a week off, and then it's twelve tournaments in a row. So that's that's what the current schedule is at the moment. But obviously, that's what their plans are. I think the Champions Tour. If you look at the uh, demographic. Then, obviously, the Champions Tour guys at our ages, we are oh, yeah. obviously going by all the stuff. We're more susceptible to to catching the virus. You know, it's just our age group with being over fifty. Um, 
So I think they'll be watching closely how the PGA Tour, how when they get re going again, how all their measures are working out and what have you. But we're scheduled to start on the 27th of July, which means that I will need to go to back into America on the 13th of July. But as it stands at the moment, I'm not allowed to, being a non-U.S. passport holder, I'm not allowed to enter the U.S. Uh, and at the moment, Marsh Harbor, there are no flights at all. The airport's been shut down. There's no inter-island flights here in the Bahamas. There's no flights at all. So it's I'm just watching to see what's what's going to happen. You know, obviously, we've still got another, what, seven, eight weeks before before our first tournament is scheduled. Um, but with the, the way current things are, at the moment, I cannot enter America. So it's going to be interesting to see. I thought they just um, exempted um, professional, <coughs> excuse me, sportsmen for entering America, Darren. Obviously, it's a kind of moot point if you can't get on an airplane. But I think the likes no, of Matt, Matt, Matt Fitzpatrick the other day, and he was uh, uh-huh. he'd been tested and he was waiting for the waiver to come through, and it now has. So I'm assuming he's yeah. he'll be on his way to the states. Yeah, I presume. I, that's what I was going to say. I presume that will be going on for the Champions Tour guys as well. The majority mm-hmm. of the Champions Tour players are all American, as you yeah. would probably know by taking a look at it. So there's not yeah. that many of us away. I, I know, um, I believe, uh, Miguel um, Jimenez, he is um, he's in the Dominican Republic. He can't hasn't been able to get back to Spain to see his family or anything either. He's down, in, down there. So I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. But my... <laughs> My P1 visa from the U.S. Um, also expires about the 4th of June. And I haven't been able to get go anywhere and get it renewed and all that sort of stuff. So my, my, it, has been, um, it has been granted again, my new one, every day, all the paperwork's there, but I haven't been able to go to a U.S. embassy to get one. So not only can I not get a flight, and not only can I not <laughs> I haven't got a waiver yet, but my visa's expired, so I'm not really in a good, strong position right now at the moment. Yeah, um, well, just when golf does come back, uh, just the fans thing, you know, fans, no fans. I've been a lot of chat, Darren, and you're a big Ryder Cup yeah. guy. Uh, what do you think about this yeah. Ryder Cup without fans? Do you think that's a? Have you got an opinion? Have you on that? I think the whole thing about the Ryder Cup, you know, it's it's one of the, uh, it's a huge experience. It's it's. It's just, you know, I've been fortunate that I've played my share of them and I've been involved with it for a long time. And it's like no other event. You guys know, you've, you've, you've been there. The atmosphere is incredible. And the atmosphere is not just with the teams and the bond that you have with the team. It's the whole, the fans make it. You know, the home fans are the ones that, that you know, they get a little bit loud, they get carried away, and, and, and they all have a bit of fun. So if it was me, would I want to play in a Ryder Cup without fans? No chance. No because chance. they make they make the event. No chance. I would have. It just it wouldn't be the same for me, you know. I, but that's just me. I I sort of thrived on both the atmosphere of your home support and indeed going up against the opposition fans. So you know that that's that's what makes the Ryder Cup so incredibly special. And I know some guys say no, we should play it. Some guys say no, we shouldn't play it. But I think playing and playing it without the the fans, especially for the guys who's first Ryder couple would be, it would be just nowhere near the same level of, oh, I don't know, pressure, of of fun, of reveling in the whole thing. It just wouldn't be the same. So for me, if there's no fans, I wouldn't, it, I, my personal opinion would be that they should postpone it until such times as they can fans. You, you didn't watch the match, the Tiger 
Tom Brady thing yesterday, did you? I did, and I was sitting watching the match um, here at Flippers Beats Bar, drinking copious amounts of sea breezes, watching <laughs> everything. I thought Tom Brady was going to run out of golf balls. Um, <laughs> I thought he was going to have to send back in for them, unfortunately. Um, but I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. You know, it was um, it was interesting. I think Tiger all had Tiger did was just hit it straight up the middle of every fairway, and Phil had all the chat and um, you know hitting it sideways as he does now and again. And um, you know, overall, overall, I thought it was pretty good. You know, obviously disappointing that the weather was the way that it was, but it was certainly interesting. You know, you, you've got an eight handicapper and a four handicapper there, and seeing them up with two of the best players in the world. And it sort of highlighted um, something that, whilst they're unbelievable in their arena, you know, it was a little bit of a different one than the step up into our arena. I only asked, Darren, because I, as a TV production, I actually thought it was pretty sensational. And I just wonder if the Ryder, yeah. if the Ryder Cup would work in that, you know, cameras in the carts, everybody mic'd up. I mean, that would be phenomenal. Even if there was no fans, what a TV production it would be. It, yeah, it would be, but it's, and yes, I get, get your point, you know, it, it, they did do it very, very well with the carts, and um, they give Charles Barkley a little bit of grief, and, and yeah. he was brilliant as well. Yeah, Justin was. Thomas was, was brilliant whenever he, he came in, and, you know, everybody everybody bought into the whole thing, and it kind of came across fabulous. But we're not talking about an exhibition match here, we're talking about the Ryder Cup. Yeah. It's a totally different sort of thing, and I get where you're coming from. Um Having having guys mic'd up is one thing. Um, as long you as need you a have three, a three second, second delay. delay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. At least it depends who you put the mics on. <laughs> there'd, be yeah. a few, there'd be a few where the producers were going, oh, maybe we might need to switch his mic off. Yeah. There'd be a few of us that would, our language may be a little bit more colourful than others. Um, they have to be careful. Yeah, the talk of the right, it gives us a chance to maybe just move into that. Uh, obviously, a great career as a player, but uh, can I want to talk about the 2016 first? I don't know if that's painful for you. Uh, yeah, I'm still pissed off we lost. But uh, well, I've got Huggy's got a ton of questions, but the one I was interested in—it's getting harder for away teams now. I mean, the course setup. I mean, you're you're on a hiding yeah. to nothing, aren't you? And the same—it was the same in Paris. Well, what I'm trying to say is, don't beat. I don't think you should beat yourself up too much about it because it's it's going to get harder and harder to. <laughs> no, it is going to get harder and harder. I went win away. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And you know, at the, at the end of the day, um, home advantage is, as you say, getting uh, bigger yeah. and bigger because you set up the golf course. You, you 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 you've got more fans pulling for you than against you. Uh, all those sort of bits and pieces. But you know, you're still talking about. Um, 12, 24 of the best players in the world. Yeah. So, and when they're going out over 18 holes against, anybody can beat anybody because the, the players are all that good. So, you know, this whole, the way that it's trending, yes, home, winning a home match is expected. Winning an away match is, is going to become much more difficult. You know, it's, it's going to be tough um, this year for Podrick, if, it, if indeed it is this year, go going away, taking the team to America because they're going to be very strong again. They're going to have the home advantage, and you know, as a captain, you you, you put your heart and soul into it. Um, you know, for the couple of years that that you're going to do it, you you, you play out scenarios. You think about who's going to be playing with who because basically, Podrick would have had maybe 25 guys in his mind from the start who who, who would possibly be in the running for. You know, making the team. So we'd have been watching them and watching all their stats, and 
you know, there's so much goes into it. You know, your stats guys, um, the people who both teams now employ, their teams behind them um, are huge. The stats guy would have been, you know, obviously given Thomas, right, this Thomas John in Paris, right, this is how you set the golf course up. This is the way it all comes. It's, it's the captain's discretion. But the stats, we rely so much more on stats now than, than possibly in years gone by. And they're helping the home, the, the team, yeah. both teams, to maximize the performance. But then, unfortunately, you know, if you get out there and, and um, you know, the other team gets that momentum early and, and, and they run with it and they, they get on top of things, then it's, it's pretty tough. You can go back to the stats all you want, but you need your guys just to, you know, get out there and, and, and um, you know, perform. And sometimes guys play better than others, and that's just the way it is. Darren, how did you feel about the way Hazeltine was set up in, 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 when you were captain? Because I think it was Justin Rose, I think, was quite outspoken at the end of the tournament press conference about the how easy the course was. I mean, and it certainly was reflected in the scoring. I mean, there was, I think, the, the Garcia-Mickelson match in particular, they had about 19 birdies or something between them. How did you view it as a captain? Yeah, well, you know, it's... it's you can say what you want, but it's the home captain's prerogative. That's the way that it is to set up the golf course. That's, they can do whatever they want. That's in the Ryder Cup thing, and that's just the way it works. Mm-hmm. You know, but in saying that, you know, around Hazeltine, all the lower limbs of the trees had been removed and, and cut <laughs> off. Yeah. You, know, the, you know, that's just things like that. It, it's like, like really? Um, and the rough wasn't that severe and because the American team on paper were the longer hitters, but maybe not as straight as the European ones. So Davis set up the golf course in order to benefit himself and his team in the best way possible. So you can't complain about it because it's that's just the way it is. But obviously, um, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. But you would like the golf course to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more like what it is most weeks, where you have slightly thicker rough and you get reward for hitting the fairway and not yeah. reward for missing the fairway. And you know, unfortunately, that wasn't quite the way that his team was set up. And, at the end of the day, we as a team just didn't play well enough, and they play better. So it's back to the old thing again: just play better. That's yeah. the way it is. How, how much did the Danny Willett thing nonsense that was going on before it affect your strategy thinking, and how much did it affect him going into it? Yeah, well, you know that that, that was a real tough one um, because that wasn't Danny's doing either, and, I, and you know mm-hmm. I really really felt for Danny. You know he, he was Masters champion, and his brother has come out with this ridiculous article having a go at Americans and, and just, I mean, worst possible timing for Danny's first Ryder Cup. And, um, you know, I, I felt for him, but with the, with the animosity that was running towards him, um, you know, from, um, from the spectators, etc., I didn't think it would be the right time to have him going out on a Friday morning and the first morning and the first matches, you know, maybe again, hindsight, should I have put him out? Should I not have put him out? Um, I chose not to because I was trying to protect him somewhat. Um, and, you know, Danny, I think the whole scenario got to him a little bit. He wasn't quite on top of his game that week. But those were circumstances beyond his his control. And, unfortunately, it played out very... Um, it was something that um, was, was jumped upon by certain sections of the media. And, um, you know, it wasn't Danny's fault. It was his brother's fault. I mean, it just have a little bit of common sense. There was, there was not from Danny from his brother. Didn't, it didn't seem to happen, but um, that's what happened. And I chose to deal with it in the best way that I thought was possible. And that was sitting him out on that first morning. So how much did it change your planning? I mean, what were you, what were you going to do with him? 
Oh, and all sorts of plans. <laughs> and all sorts of plans. And all sorts of different scenarios. And then we lose for the first four matches in the first morning. Yeah. I go, yeah, what are, oh, no. So, you know, it was one of those shows. That, okay, right, what are we going to do? What, right, this is this is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to change things up a little bit. And the guys responded really well. You know, they went out and played great that afternoon. And, that, and indeed, the following morning again. So, you know, the guys were... We're, we're doing what they would do for any captain and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get back into it, but certainly a 4-0, um, uh, 4-0 uh, behind straight, straight out of this from the start was a, was a tough one to try and claw back. Here, here Dan, what was the high point? That sounds a stupid question, but you're rather than you know, focus on negative completely. Mm-hmm. What was the best thing that happened that week for you personally? <laughs> Nothing? Um, what was the best thing? Yeah, it was just a privilege for me to be those guys' captains, uh, to be their captain. You know, a lot of them I played a lot of my golf, a lot of my career with, and um, you know, to 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 have them, uh, you know, pay me to be as respectful to me being captain, trying to help them. That was the highlight of the week. But at the end of the day, it comes down to whether you win or you lose. And we went there as a team, and we lost as a team, and that's unfortunately that's the way that I look look back on it. It was a huge honour for me to be. To, to be a Ryder Cup captain, and it's a privilege that I'll never forget. But, you know, at the end of the day, we lost. And um, you don't go there. You're, all the planning and everything that goes into it, you're not going to lose, you're going to win. Um, winners and losers, and unfortunately, that, that week, we were the losers. Right. Well, the, the search for a high point continues here. What, what were the, the highlights yeah, for you as right. a player in the Ryder Cup? You know, it's funny, I got a message yesterday from Billy Foster, and he said... Um, Billy was my caddy for a very long time, and uh, he said uh, the, two days ago or something, he watched the whole of the Ryder Cup from 2006 yeah. of the case. He said he hadn't watched it in 14 years. He said it was incredible and unbelievable and all that sort of stuff. And obviously, that was um, that was a huge highlight for me to to be able to contribute to the team. You know, in those circumstances, it was tough. I got no idea still to this moment. Hard on that first tee at the K Club, oh. I managed to hit it three ten or whatever down the middle of the fairway off the first. I honestly got, I thought I could duff this, I could miss it, I could, I could top it. I got no idea, and I just stood up there, looked around the fairway, hit it, and went three ten straight down the middle of the fairway onto the green in for birdie, and that was it. So, you know, that was obviously a highlight. My first one at Valderrama in nineteen ninety seven um, was. Uh, was huge Seve being the captain. Um, he didn't really speak to me an awful lot that week, Seve, <laughs> for whatever reason. But yeah. um, he was, he was, it was different. Uh, but that that was your first Ryder Cups, obviously a very special one, and um, that was good. But you know, you come to 2006 for all the different reasons in Ireland, uh, in my personal circumstances. That probably would have been one of my highlights. Here, Darren, I was going through it this morning. 1999, though, you and Westwood against uh, Woods and Duval. The Friday afternoon four balls. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know that was brilliant. You know, Lee and I. I think Lee and I in three different Ryder Cups defeated the world number one and number two um, on three different occasions, um, and there were different ones and twos. I mean, you know, if you take a look, if you take a look there at um, uh, our partnership, um, Lee's and Lee's and myself, uh-huh. I think we have the second best partnership behind seven in Elizabeth points one it's six out of eight so we, we were yeah. we were a pretty good team 
that was a very highly charged Ryder Cup. Take take us to the the, the first yeah. tee. What's the chat before you and Westwood? I mean, they're number one and number two in the world. Were you good mates? I mean, how tense was it? Lee and I, um, you know, we we just um, we we played so much, played so many practice rounds together, played so much together that we knew each other's game inside out. You know, we we wouldn't we didn't really need to speak to each other about what we were going to do. We just trusted each other that much. And, you know, a few of those partnerships in the world, number one and two, weren't really speaking to each other an awful lot. <laughs> so so uh, you, had, you had Lee and I, which were almost joined at the hip, and then playing against guys that weren't really speaking to each other. That was certainly an interesting scenario. Um, and, you know, we just, we, we tended to enjoy it, and we, and we didn't lose too often. And that obviously made it a lot more to, to enjoyable. But we were, we were I think we, we were a pretty strong team to pair us together. Here, see on the um, yeah. See on the two thousand and six. Wisdom only played you yeah. one, once every day. What was that all about? I mean, you were three, three for three. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I think, I think Wizzy was very smart with me though, because he, and Wizzy was very brave with me. I thought, you know, looking back now in hindsight, it was a very brave call for Wizzy to actually pick me to be part of the team. You know, you think about a captain in that sort of scenario. A little bit unprecedented, you know, it hadn't happened before or whatever. But he took a huge gamble um, to actually pick me. And, you know, obviously I'll be forever grateful for him for, for, for doing that and picking me and getting, getting me there. And I contributed it to the team. But it was a, it was a big call for him. Imagine if he'd gone there and I just had a collapse because he couldn't play, blah, 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 lost all my games. He would have got, maybe not slaughtered, but he would have got a lot of criticism for saying, what you do that? Why, why? Surely you should have known better. Um, but well, Woozy was 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 brilliant with me the whole week. He was absolutely brilliant with me because he said, he said, right, Darren. Um, he said, you're only going to play once a day. That's all you're going to do. You're going to rest. Um, I don't think you would be um, quite up for you know playing um, all five games, which is which suited me down to the ground. It was fine. I don't think mentally I have been able to play five five times. So I think that was that was down to Woozy, and I think he was very smart and and. And used me perfectly for in terms of the team. That that certainly rings too, Darren. I'm, I was like Billy Foster. I watched that 2006 Ryder Cup on the telly a couple of days ago, uh-huh. and on uh-huh. the Sunday afternoon in your singles against Zach Johnson. I mean, at the end there, you yeah. you didn't look as if you had another hole in you. Never mind another match. I mean, what was no, that I like? Was I, I was just I was just gone, and Billy Billy was trying to keep me going the last few holes and the playing against Zach. You know, I'd hold a couple of um, couple of nice pots around the turn, and I was up, and um, obviously playing quite nicely. And then, as it was transpiring, I was, and we're getting near the end of the match, it was like, uh, oh shit, it could be it could be me that gets the winning point. It doesn't. The winning point never really um, doesn't make any difference because it doesn't make any difference to me personally because it's all about how the team goes. It was a team thing. It doesn't matter who gets the winning point, but. That's the way, because Woozy had put me in the middle of the field and we'd been playing really, really well um, in the middle of the, in the middle order. So as I was coming down the stretch, I think, right, how many up am I now? Three up, four to go. What, what, what am I? And it was one of those sort of scenarios where I'm thinking, well, is this all going to come down to me and all sorts of stuff? And, you know, when I got onto that, onto that 16th green and I got, um, I got maybe a 20-footer downhill for birdie and I left it about three foot short. And Zach had a 12-footer coming back up the hill, and he just missed it. And I think Tom Lehman must have given Zach the nod or something, or maybe Zach just took it upon himself and just 
picked the ball up because it wasn't really a putt you would give. It was a smelly little downhill three footer. Mm. But I think maybe Zach and, and and Tom they could see where I was, and um, you know it was a huge, um, it was a huge moment for for me personally. That and I kept all, I kept all my stuff together all week. Had been very very good, but it just got onto that 16 screen, and then the whole thing when it was over, the whole emotions just got to me. I just couldn't contain it anymore. And uh, you know even now whenever I watch it, it's sort of um, you know it almost brings a tear back in my eye and, and all that sort of stuff. But for, for me, there was a lot of emotion that week. There was a lot of everything went on that week. But the thing that you know I'm most proud of is that I helped the team. That's the whole. That's the whole thing. That that's why I went there to help the team. Do, and, and we won. I think we should not underestimate the the that you mentioned it there, but the the gesture that Jack Johnson made. I think I, I saw it in yeah. the telly as a saying, "I wouldn't have given you in yeah. normal circumstances." No, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't give it to myself. No, <laughs> I've never yeah. told anybody else. It was it was it was a very it meant it meant a lot to me. It really really did, really did. Yeah. But that's Zach 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 is a gentleman. Yeah, it was brilliant stuff. It was that I, I don't know about you, Huggy, but that I've been mean, a few golf tournaments over the years. But that that first tee at the K Club, oh my, I've, I've got mm. goosebumps to you know even think talking well, about it now. Yeah, well, I was the same. I mean, I was I was there when when Darren walked onto the tee. You know, keep quiet for a minute, Darren. We're just going to have a wee chat here. Oh, you yeah. can't. I'm sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. It was, uh, and it was, it was. Un- I mean, I had a tear in my eye. Never mind anybody. I mean, it was unbelievable. Mm. I've never seen anything like it before or since. And I thought Lee Westwood handled it really well too. I don't know if you were aware, but he kind of hung back a bit as you were walking on the team to let you have your moment. I mean, that was a that was a nice touch as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He. Yes. He did. Lee was obviously very friendly with Heather as well, and the whole situation. And he was a perfect partner for me, as I said, because we played so much golf together, etc. And you know, to walk on, he let me get on there, and um, you know, Chris DeMarco and um, Phil gave me a big hug and all sorts of carry on. And we're starting to, we're about to um, to go there, hit, and we're about to go. And I look at Lee. He's got tears in his eye. Billy's got tears in his eye. And I looked at them and I said, boy, we've got a man up here. We've got to get out here and, <laughs> and try and win the match. It was, a, it was a very different atmosphere. It was, as you say, both of you, it was loud. Um, it was it was raucous. Make no mistake, I, I felt I knew exactly, um, you know, what was going on, the roars, the tears, everything. And I was sort of, Try to get my ball on the tee without any watching so much because your hands always shake a little bit when you put yeah. the ball down the tee and the right up and mine. I was I was trying to find a tee peg with a little bit of a bigger top on it so the ball wouldn't fall off. <laughs> but I managed to put it down there and uh, sort of make a swing and hit it down the middle and looked at Lee and said, right, come on, let's go, let's get this done. Yeah. So it was a very emotional sort of moment and certainly one that I'll never forget. Yeah. yeah. One last question on the Ryder Cup, Dan, before we kind of move on. Yeah. You touched on your great partnership with Lee. That obviously worked incredibly well. Yeah. What doesn't work, or what have you seen that, that has tended not to work when it comes to putting people together in foursomes and four balls? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one, isn't it? You know, um, again, with these days, obviously you look at personalities first. You see who who tends to play practice rounds with each other at different tournaments. You just watch everything. But you know that's been one of my one of the things that that the Americans have copied somewhat, should we say, in, in terms of what Europe does in the, in, in the Ryder Cup. But the guys, you may not sort of get on great with all the guys in that team room, but everyone that I've been involved with, those twelve guys in that room, would 
do anything for each of the other guys. So there's always that bond and that thing. So that makes it a little bit easier because you know that the guys will pull together for the, for, the, for the team and they will play with whoever you put them with. Yet at the same time, you still want to find that blend of, of, of who wants to play with them. So, you know, you ask the guys, you, you say that it's not information that none of the rest of the players will see. Say, give me two players, give me three players that you would like to play with. And then you figure out what the help your staff guys and um, who's going to play with who. So, you know, for the most part, that sort of works. But then you look at a scenario where, for example, Patrick Reed and the American team, which sort of he, he sort of keeps himself to himself. That would be a very tough one. Albeit Patrick Reed's a very, very he's a hell of a player. Mm. Uh, you know, he's a brilliant player. Uh, he's a major champion. But his personality would make it difficult to actually play him with anybody. But then again, he's too good, good a player to not have on the team. But in all my ones in the, on the European time, whenever I've been involved, it's been, you know, whoever you play with, that's what, it, that's what it's going to be. Because usually um, you will have told the captain who you would like to play with. Dan, we've had a kind of running gag on these podcasts with asking people about their, their Walker Cup experiences, you know, yeah. whether they were picked or not picked, and you know these sort of things still fester in yeah. Podrick Harrington and Lee Westwood and all the rest of them. But you, rather uniquely back in the day, 30 years ago, it happens more often now where guys turn pro and not worry about playing mm-hmm. in Walker Cups. But you, you know, you were yeah. a kind of dominant amateur in 1990 and the, the 1991 yeah. Walker Cup was in Ireland. Yeah. You didn't wait yeah. for it. What was your thinking behind no. all that? Well, I had um, I'd sort of decided that I wanted to turn pro that year, uh, 1990. And I had had my solicitor at home, the guy that had looked after me and helped me, he called um, uh, called IMG and said, I've got this young kid here in Ireland interested in turning pro. Would you be interested in him? And they um, didn't get back to him. They didn't call him back. A uh, particular guy at IMG didn't call him back, ignored him. So gets on to later in that year, um, and I'm playing down the Irish, uh, Irish close down in uh, Bounce Win that, and the media had been asking me, the Irish press had been asking me, what are you going to do? Because obviously there was a chance I was going to turn pro. And I had said all along that, you know, I'm not going to turn pro unless I've got a management company behind me that are going to help me do it all. So, as things transpired, I said that at the start of the week, as things transpired, I won um, the Irish Amateur. And Dougie Heather, who's a really good friend, of a lawyer in Dublin, said, um, saw me that week, he said, listen, I'm going to get a guy um, called Chubby Chandler, I'm going to get him come over here and meet you on Monday. He's just started his own management company, ISM, blah, blah, blah. So, as things transpired, I won on a Sunday, met Chubby on the Monday morning uh, in Dougie's office in Dublin, and turned pro. And Chubby said to me, look at me, he said, and I asked the question, you just asked me, well, you know, what about Walker Cup next year? Um, it's in Ireland, I'd love to play, all that sort of stuff. And Toby turned around and just looked at me straight in the eye and said, listen, turn pro and you'll be a much better player in a year's time than if you, if you stay and wait for, for the Walker Cup. So that was it, turn pro, Toby took care of everything, went to the tour school that year and got, uh, got my card and that was me off and running. But as it transpired, Dougie had some hospitality at the Walker Cup in Port Monarch, his home club, later that year, whenever the Walker Cup was there. So I all go down like any young pro type, kitted out on all my, all my foot jewelry, typist, waterproof stuff, all the, all the stuff you aspire to have when you're an amateur about the term pro. And I go down there and I watch the Walker Cup, and I turned to Chubby and I said, they look like a bunch of amateurs. 
And that, that was my whole take on them. Chubby. And there was you know, some unbelievably good players there. But do I have a regret for not playing Walker Cup? No, not at all. Because, you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm at a record. They counted more in America than they, they do over at home. And it wasn't something that well, it would have been nice to play Walker Cup, but it didn't really mean an awful lot to me. My whole intention was to become a professional, and that's what I did. How would, how would you describe your relationship with Chubby? I mean, it's been, my goodness, it's 30 years now and you've been with the same guy. That's unusual in, in pro sports, or certainly in pro golf. Yeah, you know, my thing with Chubby, we've never had a contract. It's always been based on the shake of a hand. And, and, you know, one of the things that Chubby said to me when I met him in that office was, you know, my job is to help you um, try not to make as many mistakes as I have. You know, I've made all the mistakes, and my job is to steer you away from making those mistakes. And, you know, that's what, is, that's what he's done after all these years and keeps continuing to do, do so. More so in the early years, obviously, starting to travel around the world, playing in professional tournaments and what have you. But, you know, it's still... We still speak every week or a couple of weeks or whatever. Um, you know, we still speak frequently, and he's got this and he's got that. And, you know, I wouldn't have become the player that, that I became without Chubby's help and direction. The, um, your professional career, 21 victories around the world. Uh, I guess there's, you know, people looking at it. You might have a different opinion, but people looking at it will go, well, beating Tiger at the World Match Play 2000 at La Costa. Obviously, the Open 2011. Mm-hmm. Is it the Open? Is that the one that stands out for you most? Um, yeah, the Open is the biggest and best tournament in the world. Yeah, obviously. I mean, it just is. It's the oldest and biggest and best. You know, and, I, and especially as growing up in Ireland, you know, it was the one that, like any young kid, you know, you'd be practicing whatever, right, this is for the Open. It would never be, this is for the Masters, this is for the US Open, this is for the PTA, if I'm chipping or potting. It was always, this is for the Open. And, you know, I got there and... and um, you know, I, I sort of eventually took me a long time to become a major champion, but I got there. And I'm very proud of the fact that I won the Open Championship because that was the one that I wanted as a kid. That was the one that was most important to me. Uh, and I did have chances to win all the other ones and didn't didn't quite manage to do it. But the Open, I did have quite a few chances to win it. Could never manage to get it done. And then that particular year in 2011, I did get it done. One of the other ones as well, though, I won WGC at Firestone. Yeah. And um, Firestone is one of those um, revered courses, isn't it? Firestone is, has got a has got a reputation um, as being, if you're a traditional American proper um, golf course. And, you know, while beating Tiger in 2000, um, and the match play was brilliant because that was, Tiger was at his prime. Yeah. You know, I got, I got lucky that day, in fairness. He had an off day, and I had a great. I had a really good day. So I just got him on a on a good day because Tiger plays well. He just he was just beating everybody. But as it transpired, he had an off day that day, and I made the most of it. But then he was chasing me down the stretch at Firestone as well, and I held him off at Firestone. And Firestone, you know, to win another WGC, not just one, but win another one, sort of was a huge boost for me because I hadn't just won one, I'd won another. I backed it up on one at Firestone. So that was huge, but majors, majors are just that little bit more special. And you know, to get it, to get it done at uh, St George's was 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 special. It was it was a culmination of many years um, of failure, I guess, to actually get in the position right. This is this is your chance, and, and I went out there and played like I didn't care. I managed to win. And I won it that I won that week 
with my ball striking. I didn't win with my popping on the greens or anything. I, it was all my ball striking won me that tournament. Yeah, Pete. We had Pete Cowan on, you know, a few weeks ago on this podcast, Darren, and I uh-huh. think uh, he he was talking about you earlier that week that when you won the Open, and I, uh-huh. I don't think the the phrase basket case is too far from what you <laughs> described. Um, oh no, 100% take us through correct. that. Well, I'd sort of the week before was Scottish Open, and we were about playing in Castle Stewart, and um, I've been working hard with Pete and. and you know, the week before in Castle, I was just, I was absolutely flushing it, just ripping it, as good as I could hit it. And then I went out on, on the uh, Sunday, I think it was the, I think it was the year that we had the bad weather. So there was one of the days, Kansas, uh, mm. so Sunday was the last round. So I'm going on Sunday and I play with Lee and Monty in the, in, on Sunday in the last, uh, in the last round. And I play, I play like a bit of a dick. I don't play any good on the Sunday. And I'm, I'm sort of, as I got quite irritated with myself. So we were flying down. There was a charter flight flying down from um, from up there down to down to Kent, down to St. George's. So I'm in the player's locker room. So I bump into uh, Matt Pitcher and his wife. And we start having a couple of drinks. And then, because we're waiting for the rest of the golfers to finish, etc. And we carry on having a couple more drinks. Well, I'm sort of a little bit merry on the flight on the way down. Not merry as in happy. Merry as have a little bit too much alcohol. So that's fine. So I ended up go, going to the house that we had rented and have a little bit more there, um, a little bit more red wine whenever we get there. So I wake up the next morning and I'm still irritated with myself that I played so well up on Cassis Stewart and hadn't, hadn't had a bad day. So I go down to the range Monday afternoon and go down and uh, George hit some balls and I'm still flushing it. I'm still hitting it great on the range and all that sort of stuff. And then I go out and play on, on, uh, on the Tuesday morning and go and play early with Lee. And we go on with tee off, and I'm hitting it great, and I'm still putting like a dick. So every time I get onto the green, I'm now getting fed up with it, and I'm picking the ball up when I go off the green. So I come in and I see Pete Khan, and, and Pete say, "Well, how are you getting on?" Blah, blah, blah. I said, "I'm hitting it great, Pete. I'm fed up." And blah blah blah. And then go out on Wednesday morning and play with Rory. So we tee off and we go off early again, hitting it great. Rory's just ripping it, um, and I get on the greens and I'm putting awful again. So then I do start picking it up nearly in every green. So we join uh, on the when we get to the 11th or 12th hole. Um, we've gone out early, so we get a clear run right. But Charles Watson and Louis Eusthausen think they can jump in in front of us on the 10th. So we catch up with them on the 11th. So they call us down on the on the 12th, the part three there. Is it the 12th or 11th? They call us down anyway. So me thinking, okay, right, we're going to take these two on. I've got Rory as my partner. He's a young kid, just ripping it. Blah, blah, blah. We'll take on the two South Africans. So we go and play with them. Then we join up and said, right, let's have a game. Because you know what those two are. Those two, Charo and, and Louis, um, well, especially Charo. Charo's not very good at opening his wallet. He hits his cobwebs <laughs> in there. He doesn't open it too often. So I'm thinking we can nick 20 quid off them or whatever. So we play. We have a match. Rory's flushing, making birdies. I'm just picking up when I get onto the green. I'm a little bit fed up. So I'm walking off the 14th about 50 yards, 30 yards ahead of the, the three of them. And the three youngsters start shouting at me, where's your major, Dan, blah, 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 all that sort of carry on, <laughs> giving me a little bit of grief. Can you imagine youngsters giving me a little bit of, little bit of grief? But anyway, that was fine. So I took 20 quid out of, from Charles whenever Rory and I won. And I made sure I called them both of them on the Sunday evening after the tournament was over. <laughs> <laughs> Which was very enjoyable. 
Darren, the phrase we talked about, you talked about earlier, was inexorable decline into golfing irrelevance. It was written after the you lost. There you go. There you go. It was written to the I think it was two thousand and seven match play or something. Second round, you lost. It was pure. See, as journalists, we we sit in the, the media tent and go, "This golfer's a prick," and that golfer's just been a total dick. It just yeah. go, it just goes to prove that yeah. that hacks. I mean, that was pure spite on my part. Um, so, yeah, I know. Uh, so, uh, so journalists can be dicks as well. Oh, totally. Yeah, as and as are we at times. Yeah. Uh, no, so there you go. You consider this a, a, an apology. It, it was pure spite for, for some. <laughs> it's fine. Hey, listen, it, it was it was up in my office at home, highlighted in yellow and with a yellow <laughs> highlighter. No, anyway, I didn't quite go as far as as being doing a Brooks Kopka and getting a picture of your face and putting it on a dartboard. I didn't quite go that far, but you know, it was up there. It's just a little reminder all the time. Said, "I'll have him at some stage. I'll have him." But but I wanted to make a more general point. I mean, people take their motivations from different places. I wonder if if slights and you know, I know the boys were having a laugh on the on that practice. Yeah. Room, but, but does that stuff really get you somewhere in the soul? No, no, not really. You know, um, I've had um, over the course of my over my career, I've had some nice things written about me, and I've had some bad things written about me. And you know, that's part and parcel of. When you're doing what the job that we do, you guys got to report, and sometimes if you're a dick, they give you a little bit of grief, and it's deserved. You know, the ones that I, that I that I took exception to were the times that um, that uh, I thought, "Whoa, hang on a second here, that's that's a little bit too much, that's unfair." I've I've listened, uh, I've I've had a, especially in the early years, you know, I didn't have a grip. Um, rapport with the media. You know, I was so frustrated with myself. Half the time, I'd march off of a bogey the last or whatever. I wouldn't speak. So you know, I was I was young and stupid and arrogant and and didn't get it until maybe a little bit later in my career because uh, you guys are there to do a job as well. But I just got frustrated with myself and didn't want to speak to anybody, and that was perceived as as um, being rude to you guys, which it was. But I learned as I got a little bit older, and you know, things happened. Whenever I was playing, I was playing Dunhill one year. Whenever Dunhill was um, was three was the three man team, so I was playing for Ireland, and I think I was out and I was playing against. Might have been was it Sergio or was it Goose? I can't remember. Uh, and I was covered the front nine, and I think I shot twenty nine or something. It was metal match play. I shot twenty nine, I think, on the front of St Andrews, and we're coming down the back. And my foot slipped in seventeen, and I ended up, I, I came back in maybe four over or something and lost, and. I had, there was a journalist that used to write for the Sunday Times, a guy called Nick Pitt. And mm. he had a right <laughs> go at me in the in the paper the next day. Called me and Darren Clark playing like a 36-handed capper and all that. He had a right good go. He, I mean, it was just, it was a gratuitous have a proper go for no reason. I was trying the balls off coming down the stretch and I just, I didn't play great. And he called me a 36-handed capper. So, I don't know what standard of golfer he was, but that was I didn't I didn't appreciate the the um, the having a go with no justification. So that's fine. So as things transpired, and I'm telling you exactly when that was. That was in I think it was September 1999. So and I don't know if you boys were in the press room whenever we did it, but as things transpired, 2000, um, I was playing at La Costa, and I won at La Costa. The following week as we talked about, the following week was Dubai. So I'd gone straight from Lacoste to play in Dubai, and we were playing at, uh, not the Emirates, we were playing at Dubai Creek. 
So I get there, and I think I was the first was the first European to win the WGC. And there was a media thing, because by the time I got home and then got out to the bar, it was Wednesday afternoon. So I walked in there, and um, and I said, I will answer every question that any of you have for me. I have no problem doing so, but I will not do it until that man is removed from the back of the media room, which was Nick Pitt. And it took me a while. It didn't take me that long, but it was just... I thought I am not gonna I'm not gonna speak in front of this guy for him to have anything after he's called me a thirty six handicapper and blah blah blah. So it was just little bits and pieces like that did tend to spur me on a bit. But do you not think it might have been again, who am I or who are we to to, to kind of let that stuff just wash off you? Is it not slightly destructive in a way to kind of to cling on to that kind of stuff? Yeah, but um, you know. I'm an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth sort of guy. Yeah. I've always been that sort of way. And yes, is it destructive? Uh, was it destructive? I don't think so. It was, but there are there are only a few examples out of um, sure. many years of actually doing it. And you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, it was fine. It was a little bit of motivation for me. It was a little bit of uh, right. I'll get my own back on that one. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think it's criticism is part of our job. That that is that goes with our job. But criticism, for 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 the sake of it, is not part of your job. So that's that that was my opinion. And you know, if I deserved it, great. I take it on the chin. So I had lots of things written about me that I, that that I didn't like. But I know in 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 the, in the scenarios, that's fine. That's okay because I deserved it. But when I didn't deserve it, that's whenever I had an issue. Yeah, it's all a bit of a dance down. Yeah, from our point of view, we've got to if we write something that's you know if we go in with both barrels and, and write something about a player, we 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 kind of know that there's not going to be a relationship going forward. I mean, I think Lawrence and I have both had oh, yeah. you know situations like that. I, I had one with a a Scottish golfer who you know I, I won't name him, but he won eight order of merits. Um, our, <laughs> oh, I know, I know you and Monty aren't in each other's Christmas cards. Eh? Yeah, well, my relationship with him. Yeah, changed a bit. I mean, you how I, I know you've kind of not been as bad. No, didn't go more than a decade without speaking to him like I did. But uh, how how has your relationship been with him over the years? I'm thinking of you know what happened in Indonesia back in the day, and then I'm trying to get you to I'm leading you into the story of what happened when you played at the Irish Open and there was a a delay and your ball was had to be left in the rough and you came back the next morning and lo and behold, it, the lie was somewhat different, shall we say? Yeah, it was the leprechauns that flattened all the grass. But, you know, it depends. We, we, I guess is you have your values. My my guess is, uh, the way that I look at things is, when I got back out there that next morning and I was leaving the air open or whatever and they flattened by the grass all around the spectators because they were desperate to try and help. It just wasn't right. It wasn't fair. I called the rules fish over and I just hit, in my own mind, I could not have taken advantage of what was going on there. Even though within the rules, I was fully allowed to do that. But I thought, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to chip back out and do hit the shot that I would have hit last night. So I was doing that in fairness to the field. That was that was what are they called all these uh, but knocking balls. Um, what is it? Um, I don't know. Just doing, trying to do the right thing, and that's the way that I've always tried to to do things. You know, I would have. Uh, it would not have sat well with me had I hit that on the green and then got on to win the tournament. I'd have for, forever regretted that. That would not have been the way I would want to win a tournament. I want to win it fair and square. So for me, I that's what I chose to do. You know, I said Monty's had a few um, incidents in the past. There's quite a few incidents in the past where that has been somewhat questionable. 
Well, you know, at the end of the day, some people do do the things their way. Some people do it their own way. And, you know, in in, in defense of Monte, he's been fantastic to me since we've been back out in the Chapters Tour and all that sort of stuff, been very friendly. I've played practice rounds with him and what have you. But there's certainly some things that I'm sure if he was to go back on, he would probably change them again. You know, he may he may do things differently. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that desire to win in some people um, sometimes overrides um, sort of what, what the, how you get there, the the desire to win. But for me, I've always wanted to do things the right way. That's yeah. probably the best way of saying it. You've always been absolutely rock solid on this kind of stuff. How have you seen it through the years? The way that guys play and with, with respect to the rules, has it got? Are they got more lax? Have they got more cavalier? Or are people? Has there always been a kind of core of people who don't really do it to the appropriate standard? Yeah, oh, I think, you know, some people play to the rules and some people bend the rules. Yeah. And there's a difference between playing to the rules, bending the rules, and flat out cheating. So there's, there's a difference in the three. Me, I've always played to the rules. Yeah. If I, I had a run-in with, um, Anders Rorfan many, many years ago um, at whenever I was playing the Benson Hedges in the Oxfordshire and I'm hitting a downhill tempo par four left to right uh, second shots over the corner of the water and I pitched it over the ball bounce a couple of times and come back down into the water now the red line was an inch uh, above the um, above the uh, above the the line of the thing so the ball couldn't have bounced twice and come back down in the water because it wouldn't have bounced twice because there was no wasn't enough room for it but he, um, in his infinite wisdom, said the ball did not cross. And I then, I, I said, okay, but well, if that's what you're going to say, I asked Wuzzy, Wuzzy didn't say it, he was the other guy. Um, and he wasn't watching, because we don't always watch the other shot. And he said it didn't cross. And whilst, whilst I knew it had crossed, and Billy, my kind of Billy Foster knew it had crossed, he said it didn't. So I would never have wanted to take a situation where Another player says it didn't it didn't cross. So I was happy to go and hit the shot from 170 yards back again. Didn't bother me. That was what I wanted to do. So if there was ever a 50-50 call yeah. or even less, I would always take the go back option because I never wanted ever wanted anybody questioning my integrity on the golf course ever. Because to me, that that sign. Where did that come from, Darren? I don't know. I think it's just respect for the rules and respect for the game. I think you know you you can't. You, you can't, the, the rules are, are black and white. You either play to them or you don't. Yeah. And if I ever thought, you know, that that I was breaking a rule or I'd broken a rule or whatever, you know, I couldn't. I don't know. I, don't, I couldn't sleep at night. You know, I'm, it, w- it would be. It was. It's not in my makeup. I I sort of love and hate the game in equal measures, but I respect the rules. The rules are number one. And that's the way I've always looked at things. So some guys will try and claim a ball has crossed up there, crossed back there, whatever. And then they put their, their playing partners in a really awkward position because you're going to have to call against it. Now, I don't think it did that. I don't think it crossed up there. What happened. No, well, I think it did. I mean, it's just, you have that. Now, I've had a few scenarios where I've had people, where I've been the other way, and knowing that the ball did cross up somewhere and I've stood my ground and said no that ball crossed up there you know I had an uh, episode at, at um, playing in Portugal Portuguese Masters um, a few years ago where I almost came to blows with the guy because I'm hitting my second shot into 
a par five, and it's the was it ten, eleven, twelve? I think it's twelve. The par five and water on the left. And I'm trying to. And the um, the guy is 150 yards up ahead of me on the right hand side. Uh, he's had to lay up. I'm going for the green, and I've started this ball at the right right hand side of the green. Now there's a bit of water that's about 80 or 100 yards short. You've got to carry water again, then water all the way up the left. So I've hit a bit of a hook, but there's only 240 to the front of the green. So I've hooked it and started the right edge of the green, and the ball has curved and gone in uh, up by the uh, up by the green. And this guy, who is 150 yards ahead up on the right-hand side, has shouted up, like, what, when he sees the walker, what are you doing? The ball didn't cross. Yet my other playing partner, who was beside me, said, ignore him. The ball's, uh, I saw exactly where the ball was going. We almost came to blows about it because he was, he was questioning my integrity. Yeah. And I just, uh, I was, I was, if it had been three somewhere, he would not have been in good shape. I was, I was so angry that he had actually questioned my, what I would do. You know, if I, if you're thinking that I would, try and break the rules for my own advantage. And I've seen it the other scenario where guys have tried saying I've crossed up there when it never got anywhere near crossing up there. Some of the guys are a little bit, as I say, some of the guys are a little bit loose with the rules. Yeah, I, I had a couple of years ago, Darren, I did a thing for a magazine and an anonymous player survey thing. And one of the questions uh-huh. asked of the players, you know, again, anonymously, the, the clues in the title, but I, one of the questions was, have you ever seen another player cheat in a tournament? And 95% uh-huh. of the players said yes, they had. I found that incredible yeah. and, and incredibly disappointing. I mean, is that, does that bit gel with yeah. you? Yeah, I wouldn't, that would not, I would not, I would not stand for that. You know, if I, if I see anybody cheating, I would call them there and then. You know, I've seen questionable, I've seen a lot of questionable things, but I've never seen a flat out cheat, you know, somebody moving the ball or you know, moving their marker. I've, ne- I've never seen people, um, mm. you know, breaking things so they can have a backswing. I have never been in that position where I've actually seen it. I've seen people do what I've just described and a few other things, but I've never actually seen anybody have a flat-out cheat. Before we go, Darren, I, I just want to ask you, uh, do you think you overachieved or underachieved? Underachieved. That's just my feeling on, you know, if I had done things, if I had been a little bit more, oh, I don't know, Discipline, should we say, Lawrence? If it had been a little bit more, um, I don't know if dedicated is the right word or not. Um, because, as you both know, I sort of, I've always worked my ass off and worked more than what people actually probably think I practice. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty hard worker. But if I had been a little bit more disciplined in, in the way that I practiced, I would probably have done way better. You know, you take a look at, Danny Willett practices better than I've, than anybody else I've ever seen because he will give himself a time schedule. You know, he'll, he'll put it right, 45 minutes hitting wages, um, maybe whatever, an hour, 90 minutes off on the putting green doing drills. And, and he sets his iPhone to go off at a certain time. It's very, very structured practice. Yeah. My practice was um, beating balls until I hit a bad one and then beat some more balls. <laughs> that was the way that I tried to do do it, and that was that was wrong. So, if I'd have been a little bit more structured in it, would I have done better? Maybe, possibly, probably, whatever. But then I wouldn't have had all the fun that I had along the way. Yeah. So, you know, it's a it's a catch twenty two. Do you want to be a hundred percent into the game? Because make no mistake, as a professional golfer, the, the game will drive you insane if you let it. And you need to have a little bit of time away from the game as well. And that's, trying to find that balance when you're a young guy 
it's pretty tough because all you want to do is golf, 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 and become the best player you can you can be. Well, certainly that was me. And you know, I started doing better and better and winning tournaments and, and competing and Ryder Cups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yes, I had a little bit of fun of that uh, um, along the way. And yes, would I have been hungover once or twice playing? Possibly. But you know, if I hadn't done that and been a little bit more right, I'm going to the gym. I'm going, which I tried that, that didn't work for me. Um, but I go to the, um, I'm going to eat properly. I'm going to do all that sort of stuff. Would I have done better? Yeah, probably. So that's why I would say an under underachievement. Do I have any regrets about it all? No, I don't. Darren, you and I have had this conversation before, but my view is that the the way that the modern game has gone at the top level has has actually discriminated against people that play the way that you play. I mean, you, there's a kind of subtlety and a nuance. There, there's shots you've got, you know, can move the ball around high, low, left, right, mm -hmm. all, all that stuff. That isn't really yeah. asked for nearly as much at the top level anymore. Uh, how do you feel about that? No. Do you feel a bit hard done by, or, or how do you feel? Um, no, it's, it's progression. I think, um, you know, it's the way it's gone. You look at tennis. Tennis has got, um, you know, it's more and more faster. The guys are serving faster. They're, they're doing it. The sport moves on. Sport improves, and and the search for hitting the ball further for for scoring better continues. And and you're right though, Huggy. You know, you hardly see anybody now hitting a three quarter knockdown shot into um, a back right flag or stuff like that. Most of the the kids now all they play is one dimension. They hit it up in the air. It doesn't matter how windy it is. They just hit it up, and the ball goes through. The ball doesn't curve as much as it used to. The wind doesn't affect it as much as it used to. So. You know that's what these all these young kids. Um, that's how they play, and you know the the, the way they swing the club, um, the amount of speed and power that they generate. That's just the guys are more athletes now than they've ever been before, and they play a different they play a different game than what it was maybe ten years ago. You know, it's it's not the same. You know, you know one of the best ball strikers and, and best um, players in in Sergio. You know, in terms of how he hits the ball, and golf ball, and shapes, and all that sort of stuff. But he's he's one of the few out there that actually still does it does it a bit at the at the top top level. The rest of the guys, Tiger obviously does it. Phil does it because he's got a great imagination. The rest of the guys just tend to hit it up in the air and and, and play that way. So it's a, it's a, just a totally different game that they're playing. Yeah, we touched on this a little bit with Rory a couple of weeks ago, um, and I you know, as I say, I bang on about this probably too much, but I put it to him that you know the the game at your level is has become more scientific than artistic. And he agreed with that, but he made a yeah. great point. He said yeah. that the but the artist will still win in the end. Yeah, the artist, there will always be a place for the artist because you can hit the ball as far as you want, um, as straight as you want, or whatever. But if you've got that little 40-yard pitch over a bunker that you need to use soft hands with, mm. put extra spin on it, maybe cut it in there or whatever, that's the artist, isn't it? That's, that's, that, that shot will never go away. Or... The artist that's got the 15-footer downhill left to right with greens that are running at 12 and a half in the centimeter or whatever, that you're trying, you've got to read four foot of break on it to let it just drop in. That's your artist. So that artist, that little, that part of the game will always be there because mechanics and having your team of your physio, your nutritionist, your trainer, yeah. your this, your that, all that sort of stuff. You'll have your whole team. But your old team aren't there when you need when you really need to step up and do it. It's down to you. So the artist will always have a, a spot in in our sport. 
that's a, it seems like a great place to finish on yeah. a nice positive uh, thanks for your time Doran uh-huh. it's been uh, it's been brilliant Not to a- talk to you again it's been a while you two boys stay safe stay healthy and I'll see you down the line somewhere all the best Doran yeah. thanks mate thanks Doran thanks for listening to another McKellar Golf production you can go listen back to this and many more podcasts on Spotify or on iTunes if you want to buy our magazine Visit us at mckellarmagazine.com. Thank you. It's a wild open road.